We are continuing in a sermon series called Rooted, Reformed, Relevant. We're exploring First Presbyterian Church's tagline. We, we spend three weeks in rooted. What does it mean to be rooted in Jesus Christ? What does it mean to be rooted in the family of First Presbyterian Church? What does it mean to be rooted as a people called to, to Central Texas and the, the Georgetown and greater Georgetown area specifically? And then the last couple of weeks, we've looked at Reformed and, and considered what it means to be a people who are part of the Reformed tradition, who have a Reformed theological foundation, and how does that inform our daily lives and what we are all about. We've looked at the, the theme of grace a couple of weeks ago and the theme of forgiveness last week. And, and today we hit into the theme of stewardship. Uh, Jack Corley was a man in his early 80s who was a mentor to me and an uh, another congregation, and he uh, had been a ruling elder in the Presbyterian Church since his early 30s, and he would always say, stewardship is everything that happens after we say, I believe. It's a recognition that, that everything we have, everything we receive, it, it really, it, 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 it's God's, and it's, it's a, if, it, if we have it at all, it is a gift. That includes certainly our, our money, our resources, our time, our energy, our focus. It's all fundamentally God's. At best, we, we steward it. We offer it in love of God and, and love of neighbor. And uh, it, it's a key theme in, in the Reformed tradition because we understand that in light of God's grace, we offer and steward everything in thanks, in thanks to God because of God's immense grace in Jesus Christ. And, and so I turn to Romans chapter 12. It's, it's a passage actually Dr. Tom Curry preached on earlier this fall, and it's a passage you can come back to really every week because there's so much there. And originally when I was looking at this passage uh, two, three months back, I thought this would be a passage that would really help explore this stewardship theme, offering our lives in in gratitude and, and, and our, our resources, our way of being, offering our hearts. And that's all there, but I'm not going to be as explicit as I thought I would be. It's, a, it's certainly all underneath the sermon, but as I prepared this particular sermon, the Holy Spirit took me in a, in a different direction and a slightly different focus, and so I'll stick with where the Spirit has led, knowing that, of course, underneath this whole passage is this sense of stewardship, of offering our lives and all that we have in gratitude to God Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21 is the scripture before us today. It is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Rome. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in suffering, persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints, extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you, bless them, and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, 
Never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink, for by doing this you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I was recently reminded this past week of a particular portion of the Velveteen Rabbit, and I want to read that portion of the story to you. What is real? Asked the rabbit one day when they were lying by the side of the nursery fender before Nana came to tidy the room. Does it mean having things that buzz inside you and stick out and a stick-out handle? Real isn't how you are made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up or bit by bit? The rabbit asked. It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who are carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off, and your eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all, because once you are real, you can't be ugly, except to people who don't understand Let love be genuine is how our section from the book of Romans begins, or as the message translates, love from the center of who you are, don't fake it. Love from the real you, the one made and redeemed in the image of God beneath all of the layers we sometimes hide behind or hold up to one another. Love from the real you, that's, that's the thing. Paul's writing to the church in Rome, a church comprised of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And after 11 chapters in this letter to the church at Rome, in which Paul articulates a profound theology of God's grace in Jesus Christ, he moves to chapter 12 in practical exhortation in light of all of this grace in Jesus Christ. And the thing Paul really wants to talk about is loving from the center of who you are. And the fact that Paul spends considerable time unpacking what that means points to the fact that he's writing to a group of Christians who are struggling mightily to let love be genuine. Let's take a moment to get a picture of precisely how that's happening in the church at Rome. And let me say right off the bat, I am indebted to Scott McKnight's recent book, Reading Romans Backwards, for, for much of what follows in his commentary on Romans, uh, has helped me to see again you know, uh, uh, that 
the book of Romans, for all of its rich theology, it's not a theological treatise fundamentally, but in essence, it is a pastoral letter addressed to a church with real issues. In one part of the church, you have Jewish Christians, those who believe in, in Jesus and also observe the Torah, the law of God, as articulated most especially in the first five books of the Bible. So they take seriously a lot of things that, that most in cosmopolitan Rome think nothing of. And, and most centrally at issue in the church is the fact that these Jewish Christians do not, will not eat any meat that has been sacrificed to a pagan god. No idol meat shall be consumed. In fact, one of the central ways this group of Christians, these Jewish Christians, show forth their faithfulness is by keeping the sacred, involatile law of God. Absolutely, we're not eating that meat. We're not committing idolatry. In the same church, you have Gentile Christians, those drawn from Rome's very cosmopolitan population. They've converted to Christianity. They also believe in Jesus, but they don't find the Torah to be binding in any way for them. They're free in Jesus Christ, and absolutely they will eat any and all meat, whether sacrificed to idols or not, because even if sacrificed to idols, idols aren't even real. In fact, this group shows forth some of its faithfulness by eating meat sacrificed to idols to to show just how free they are in Jesus Christ. It perhaps does not surprise us in the least that these two groups are having a difficult time getting along. The Jewish Christians, they sit in judgment of the Gentile Christians, as Paul puts it in one verse in Romans chapter 14. The Greek word, therefore, sits in judgment, has a sense of, of playing the part of God, of rendering what God thinks about that person, those people. And look, the Jewish Christians, they have Scripture on their side. They're keeping the faith accordingly. So yeah, yeah, they sit in the seat of God, and they judge these freewheeling, loose morals. Sure seems like everything goes Gentile Christians. The Gentile Christians, Paul writes in Romans 14, disdain the Jewish Christians That word disdain, in the Greek, it means to perceive someone as beneath another's consideration, lower than you. The Gentile Christians, which likely have some from among them that are part of the more elite aspects of society, this group, they look down on the Jewish Christians. They see the Jewish Christians as backwards or antiquated or people who just don't get it. And to follow these rigid food laws like them would also, for the Gentile Christians, lead to social ostracism and likely material loss because you didn't just turn down shared meat in that society. And so what you have is is, is judgment from one direction in the church, disdain from the other. This is the church of Jesus Christ in Rome. And it also seems likely there are some similar dynamics of the church at Corinth. Now, of course, these two groups are are very different in, in, in one sense. The law is how we show forth our faithfulness, no meat. Freedom is how we show forth our faithfulness, eat the meat. 
But in one critical way, these two groups are absolutely the same. Both groups are fully convinced of their position, not just rationally, but, but, but as deeply faithful and right. And so, whether from a place of righteous judgment or condescending disdain, increasingly, each side's life excludes the other. Literally, they have a difficult time getting to the same table for a meal because they're well very well may be meat, and so there's right there the, the issue, the litmus test for who's right and who's wrong. What a relief. The church no longer feels such strong animosity about idle meat. But I think we readily recognize that in that time, this was an issue of utmost significance in so many ways. And and to be honest, if it isn't idle meat in one generation, it's sale of indulgences in another. If it isn't sale of indulgences, it's slavery. If it isn't slavery, it's evolution. If it isn't evolution, it's abortion or same-sex marriage or the 2020 election, which is to say, always before the church, there are issues of great importance, great matters of, of of faithfulness and concern, in which sides are taken, not not just rationally, but because we have discerned a side to be deeply faithful and and true. And always, then, it increasingly becomes difficult to get to the same table with those whose convictions differ or, or differ sharply. I mean, who among us hasn't already thought ahead to Thanksgiving and, and, and certainly one of our concerns is, may well be the spreading of COVID-19, given the mix of folks who potentially could be gathering from different sections of the country or the area. But, but for some, there's also the worry uh, about how families who share the last name may not be able to handle getting to the same table this year. Paul. What is your word in such a situation, such a moment in our families or our church family? What, what say you to these Jewish Christians who sit in righteous judgment and these Gentile Christians who sit in their we-know-better disdain? Let love be genuine. Love from the center of who you are. Love from the real you. Being right, pursuing that which is true, is of critical importance, is a prophetic call. Oh, but to do so and lose love along the way? For Paul, love is always the glue. Love is always the thing. In particular, love to the other side, love to enemy enemies. How does he put it in 1 Corinthians as he's dealing with a very divided church? If, if you can do all these things and be faithful in all these ways, if you have not love, you have nothing. How does Jesus put it before those who put him on the cross, these very real enemies? Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Love, love especially for enemies, it sits at the center of what we are about. And Paul is raising it as the central focus unto a divided church. The remaining verses, 10 through 21, essentially unpack what it means to love genuinely in practice. Love from the center, love from the real you made and redeemed in Christ Jesus. 
And so you, you heard, we hear these very practical things in this litany of, of genuine love. Persevere in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, be hospitable to strangers, bless people who, who persecute you, don't curse them, be humble, don't repay evil for evil, overcome evil with with good, it, 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 it sec- I could go on and on, but it's sections like this in, in the Bible that made me think of Mark Twain's insight about the Bible. I'm not troubled by the things in the Bible which I do not understand, but I am troubled by those things which I do understand and which I find very difficult to measure up to. I think we understand this part of the Bible Romans 12, 9 through 21. And so I'm not going to spend time in this sermon unpacking each of these exhortations about genuine love. What we struggle with, I think, is that we, we really we do understand them. We can kind of figure them out, but we can be immensely timid to live them forthrightly. And so what I want to do instead of talking all of them through is to help us hear which part of these verses God may be putting on each of our hearts this day that we might, in fact, act upon them. This whole section of Romans chapter 12 begins, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is all meant to be very practical application. And I want to go about this by first describing how the church in Rome would have heard Paul's letter to them for the very first time. In ancient times, when a letter was written and then delivered to a people elsewhere, the person who wrote it often chose a very particular person to read that letter aloud. And the letter writer would go over with the letter reader precisely how that letter needs to be communicated. In many ways, when the letter was read aloud, it was to be performed so as to truly convey the ideas correctly and with the right emphases. The standard elements of these performative readings included gestures in the right spots, voice inflection, speeding up or slowing down, ad-libbing as necessary, and then critically, eye contact. The reader would look over toward a certain person or group of people who really needed to hear certain words or themes or ideas. In Paul's case, he chose a woman named Phoebe to read the letter to the church at Rome by by going to the various house churches in Rome in which the Jewish and Gentile Christians would be gathered together. Can you imagine yourselves gathering in an intimate setting of a home with a few other folks, maybe 20 or, or 30 or so, some with your own biological or Christian family with whom you disagree over matters of significant importance. Perhaps there is contention. Perhaps there is some division, some strife, some unspoken, whatever, or, or maybe it's just outright enemies. Can, can, can you imagine a setting in which some of them are littered in the room with with you? And can you imagine being in that room and hearing Phoebe read Paul's words. And upon which words in particular might Phoebe look in your direction? I'm going to read Romans 12, 9 through 21 again. But this time I'm going to read from the message translation to give us a slightly more contemporary hearing of these words and, and maybe help us hear them afresh. And my invitation as I read this 
is that you consider at which point you sense Phoebe might look directly at you in light of whatever God has on your heart, our hearts. And might that, in fact, be the Holy Spirit's prompting you and us unto specific action. Love from the center of who you are. Don't fake it. Run for dear life from evil. Hold on for dear life to good. Be good friends who love deeply. Practice playing second fiddle. Don't burn out. Keep yourselves fueled in a flame. Be alert, servants of the master, cheerfully expectant. Don't quit in hard times. Pray all the harder. Help needy Christians. Be inventive in hospitality. Bless your enemies. No cursing under your breath. Laugh with your happy friends when they're happy. Share tears when they're down. Get along with each other. Don't be stuck up. Make friends with nobodies. Don't be the great somebody. Don't hit back. Discover beauty in everyone. If you've got it in you, get along with everybody. Don't insist on getting even. That's not for you to do. I'll do the judging, says God. I'll take care of it. Our scriptures tell us that if you see your enemy hungry, go buy that person lunch. Or if he's thirsty, get him a drink. Your generosity will surprise him with goodness. Don't let evil get the best of you. Get the best of evil by doing good. When did Phoebe look your way? To be sure, nothing in Paul's exhortations promises success, at least if success is defined as changing your enemy and, and their way. There's nothing here to suggest that a church that takes these exhortations seriously will see the other side stop eating meat or, or, or start eating meat. The call is simply to faithfulness, irregardless of what they do or, or, or do not do. But it doesn't mean nothing will change when we risk loving the other side. How does Psalm 23 famously put it, when it when, about what happens when we draw near to enemies? You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. When we draw near to our enemies, when we love our enemies, Jesus shows up. He prepares a table. Jesus nourishes us with his very love in the presence of enemies. That is a profound promise. The Velveteen Rabbit talks about discovering the real you once you have been slowly but surely loved to pieces by a child. And there is much truth in that story. And it makes me mindful that, that the promise of Scripture is that we discover our real selves, our true selves, the people.
people God made us to be selves when we have been slowly and surely loved to pieces by God. And the truth is, one of the more central ways Scripture promises us that Jesus shows up is that when when we risk loving the judgmental over here or the disdainful over here, that's where Jesus then sets up table. In the presence of mine enemies, this is where we are fed upon the love of Jesus. And you know what? We are what we eat. Will we risk taking Jesus at his word that if we risk loving enemies, he, he will show, us, show up and he will nourish us on a steady diet of love? To be sure, in the course of loving our enemies, it may well be that we lose our hair and that our eyes start to droop and our joints grow loose and we get a bit shabby. This kind of love is not easy. But would we trade it for the whole world if we knew that in such love we had been nourished unto our full, real, uninhibited selves in Christ Jesus? Amen.